Welcome to Bruin Family Insights, where we equip Bruin families with knowledge to help you get to know UCLA better and encourage your student to thrive during their time at UCLA and beyond. I'm your host, Kayla Albano, and we've got a wonderful conversation lined up for you today. I'm excited to have with me two amazing UCLA faculty members to talk all about remote learning in the time of the coronavirus pandemic. Dr. Genevieve Carpio is Assistant Professor of Chicana Chicano and Central American Studies, where she works on questions related to relational racial formation, the urban humanities, and 20th century U.S. history. She holds a PhD in American Studies and Ethnicity, a Master's in Urban Planning, and a Graduate Certificate in Historic Preservation. Dr. Alex Bocoini is currently an Associate Professor in Chemistry and Biochemistry at UCLA and a faculty member at the California Nanosystems Institute. He received a PhD from Northwestern University in Inorganic and Materials Chemistry and conducted a postdoctoral stint at Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Chemical Biology. His group's research encompasses an interdisciplinary approach focusing on pressing problems in chemistry, medicine, and materials science. Alex and Genevieve, thank you so much for being here and welcome to the podcast. Uh, we're so grateful that you have just had the opportunity to take time out of your very busy schedules to be with us today. So thank you so much for being here. Each week before we dive into our conversations, we have decided that we are going to start our listeners off with some UCLA trivia to ponder. With our theme today being all about faculty and how you all are experiencing remote learning and what that means for you, today's question is, how many UCLA faculty members and alumni are Nobel laureates? So we will give our listeners some time to think about that throughout the episode, and then you will find out at the end of our conversation. The following segment of the Bruin Family Insights podcast is brought to you by Westcom Credit Union. Serving Southern California for over 85 years, Westcom Credit Union is dedicated to helping Bruins and their families build better lives. Learn more at ucla.westcom.org. On March 13th of this year, UCLA moved to remote learning for spring quarter due to coronavirus. Uh, we could have never imagined that eight months later, we would still be in this remote space with at least another quarter to go. And I know even from the staff perspective, we left in March and thought maybe it would be two weeks and then it became a month and then it became about six months and now we're here. And so it's been, it's been quite a wild ride for us as well. Uh, but the transition to remote learning has really posed a lot of unique challenges and opportunities for both students and faculty. And I'm sure for many of our audience, uh, a lot of you have a firsthand account from your students on what this experience has looked like for them. But today we are going to explore the faculty experience um, and just talk about how students can make the most of their education during this time and how families can help them do so. And so Genevieve and Alex, I want to start us off by just asking what went through your mind when we moved to remote learning in March? And then again, when you realized this format was going to carry through uh, to fall quarter and now winter quarter as well. Yeah, um, thanks for that question. I think maybe the initial feeling or thought was just panic. We were just starting week 10, which for us here at UCLA is 
you know, you're wrapping up your lecture and you're moving into finals and the shift meant not only rethinking about how we deliver our lecture content, but also assessment and finals. And at the time I was teaching a very large class um, with TAs and undergraduates from across the, the university. And as a faculty member, you know, you want to do the best that you can to make sure that you're supporting all of these diverse students with all of their um, diverse needs. And we had a very kind of short time to make that transition. So that was the um, initial response was thinking about my teaching. And then from there, I think it was the question of the goodbyes we didn't get to have as we figured out like this isn't just a, a two week thing. This is going to continue through the spring, maybe even longer and really not being able to have that closure that you usually have with a class and trying to figure out how to create engagement and community with a spring quarter in which you wouldn't have seen the students in person, which was one of the things that made us unique from other universities on the semester system, where it was a semester that was interrupted, and then they moved to remote learning. And for us, we had both experiences. So needing to connect with a class we had been meeting with in person already, and then also having to foster a new form of connection and belonging in the spring with a set of students that we hadn't yet met. Absolutely. Interesting dynamics there. Alex, how about you? So uh, my story, I guess I got a little bit lucky uh, when, when the news hit me. Uh, I was a little bit prepared for this. I, I came uh, three weeks before that. I was visiting, giving a talk at the University of Chicago and uh, a colleague of mine there who, who sort of has a lot of close connections in, uh, with folks in China and uh, Wuhan specifically. He was giving me all these horror stories. And so I was mentally kind of prepared that, you know, some, something bad is about to happen. And so it, it did. Um, and, and, and the other part I'd say is at the time I was teaching a lab course that was a winter quarter. And I usually it's upper division class and the students there, I, the assessment is more Caltech style where we give take home finals. Uh, it's very independent class. These are seniors who know what they're doing. And so, you know, it really didn't really change anything because the seniors just had to take their final exam home as, as they normally do. And, uh, and well, a lot of my colleagues were really struggling and kind of really stressed out trying to figure out what to do, how can they administer final exams and so on. Then going into spring quarter, I, I echo what Genevieve said is that uh, sort of saying goodbye, right, to, to the students. I, you know, I teach a lot of undergraduates, but I also mentor a lot of undergraduates because I have a research lab. Every year I have about, you know, six to 10, the number varies, of undergraduate researchers in my lab who, you know, usually by the end of the, uh, their senior year, during the graduation ceremony, they bring their parents, we go hang out, you know, have a celebration together go after everything is done, you know, with all the relatives and so on and get, you know, some champagne in our conference room. And so none of that was was happening this year, right? And so that was kind of a very big missed opportunity. I don't think that, you know, Zoom-based graduation ceremonies that they would put together really can replace the, the real ceremony, right? Especially from the relative's perspective. I can 
relayed that, you know, when my grandparents visited my graduation ceremony, that, that meant a lot to them, early 2000s. So, so I think it's really this personal uh, connection that, that has been missing ever since. Absolutely. And it, it seems like so long ago that we were talking about commencement and when is that going to happen again? And now it's just such a different place that we're in. So I, I think you're you're so right about that personal connection and those milestones that a lot of our students aren't getting. And when I think about personal connections, I think, Genevieve, you're in a really interesting position because you are a faculty in residence. So how did that affect your approach to transitioning to remote learning? And what was that like with your with your students who were living in your area? And now that you're still teaching, but that's got to be a whole different experience now. Yeah, so I'm really fortunate. I'm one of 20 faculty that live on campus as part of the residential community. And so throughout the year, we do engagement and programming with the undergraduate student population, which is about 14,000 in a typical year. And I think living here, it just amplified the empathy that I had for what students were going through. And in particular, when we received the notice that students were to move out and wouldn't be returning to the residential halls, And when I received the email, I could feel the real-time effect and stress that students were going through. Again, it it was unfortunate that these changes and transitions and the public health crisis was happening at the same time that classes were wrapping up and finals were coming through. And then students had the added stress of trying to figure out what their living situation was going to be. So returning home or finding an apartment, um, even those in the best of circumstances still needed to pack and figure out how they were going to travel from one place to another, which had the added complications of COVID and the real health concerns. Um, And I think in some ways, we were really fortunate to be together and have the, the staff up here to support those movements and everything was really People were very dedicated and committed to helping students through those steps. But even with those efforts, you know, going through finals, having to move, not knowing whether or not we would return in any normal way in the next quarter. The other thing that really stood out to me because I was so close to student population is similar to what Alexander was saying, which was the loss around milestones like graduation. Um, And I was also thinking about things like athletes who had played their last game and didn't know they had played their last game. Or I had talked with students who mentioned their last lunch with their friend group and not knowing it was their last lunch. And just kind of the sadness over not being able to properly celebrate those milestones. So, you know, I felt felt for them on a very deep level um, because I saw the daily kind of every day, very personal impact it had on them. Over time, I also came to have a lot of admiration for how they kind of came together and made it through it and found strategic ways to make the changes work for them as best they could. Um, And I think that was another benefit of the position because there were still about a thousand students who remained on the Hill. And even now we still have a 700 person student population that is doing their best to make the most out of these unusual circumstances. Absolutely. So we got to hear a little bit about 
what this initial period was like spring quarter and how that transition went. So I'm curious how you're approaching remote learning these days, especially when it comes to keeping your students engaged. Uh, Alex, you had mentioned Zoom graduations are ideal. I, I can't imagine even just teaching and trying to learn online in this environment is really challenging. So uh, how are you approaching that? You know, I, one of the biggest challenges uh, is that, you know, chemistry is an experimental science. And in the chemistry department, uh, we have to teach a lot of classes that are laboratory classes, right? Personally, I actually don't find teaching uh, lecture-based or seminar-based materials over Zoom. I think that is manageable, right? Again, maybe it's not ideal, but I think, you know, the way how we have a conversation right now uh, I think this, this sort of conversation can, can happen virtually. On the other hand, if you think about it, how, how do you teach uh, uh, things that you normally go into the laboratory, use specialized equipment, then and teach scientific method, right? Where you have to conduct an experiment, right? And then learn from the outcome, maybe f mess something up and restart again, right? That experience, I think, unless... Uh, we as a society start investing money and in building uh, simulators that what folks have, I guess, in the airplane industry. There is no way uh, to to kind of virtually uh, imitate that. So we're constantly struggling right now to trying to figure out the best approaches of how to teach laboratory courses. So I, I can tell you some of the things that we will be doing during the coming winter quarter. We will try to have some hands-on experience because students won't be able to enter the labs, right? Many of them will be at home. What we uh, are planning to do is to essentially to ship them some mini care packages with things that are, first of all, things that are not dangerous, right? So that's that's a limitation. Uh, but at the same time, uh, also have, have them focus on aspect where they can, can collect some samples from around them. So. One of the themes that we will be teaching this winter is, is for seniors in chemistry is going to be surrounded with polymers, plastics, right? And uh, and they will be able to collect different forms of plastic, right? right? You know, we have bottles, we have polyethylene bags, many different things that are made of different polymers. Uh, even though they won't be able to analyze them themselves uh, at home, right? It's merely impossible they will be able to ship them back to us. And then um, my graduate students who are teaching assistant in the class will, will wear GoPros and other AV <laughs> setup. And we'll be able to lie in the live form demonstrate at least sort of what can you do and then uh, transmit the data to the students. And then the students will be able to analyze the data on their own, sort of what they normally do in the lab uh, experience. So, you know, these are the things that keep me and many of my colleagues awake at night. I think that's that, that's kind of very specific to chemistry as a science, right? And I think it's also general to many other experimental sciences like biology, uh, physics, and engineering specialties. And it sounds like it takes maybe one lab worth of an experience. Now you're having to expand it into almost a week's long project by the time the students send everything and then the TAs are analyzing it and sharing back with the students. So I'm sure that affects the timeline of how students are learning too. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So you have to redesign a course. Again, luckily, I've been doing this already, that we've been trying to create courses that are research focused, right? So we're, instead of giving the same recipe to every repeating class, we, we, we change things up automatically so that the students can do more research type engagement in their coursework. But, but yeah, I mean, th this is another challenge, right? Is that you, you have to constantly reinvent yourself, right? Because normally what, what happens is that if you're teaching, you know, let's say some class, right? Where it's a theory-based class, right? General chemistry one, and it's a lecture course, that general chemistry content stays the same, right? Whether you teach it in 2010 or 2011 or the subsequent year in 2012, you might amend certain minor things, but the core of it stays the same. Whereas in this case, you have to constantly bring in new things and improvise. That sounds like a journey to go through, definitely. And I know we really appreciate all that you all are doing to to make to make some sort of experience for students who would normally be getting a little more hands-on. And so Genevieve, is is that similar to an experience you're having? I know we've got two very different uh, areas of study represented here. Um, not, not to bring the North-South campus battle into our conversation here today, but what, what else would you have to say from your perspective on that? I would say that I've also found things like GoPros to be really useful in the classroom. I'm teaching a class right now in collaboration with the Makerspace up here on the hill, which is what we lovingly call the residential community. So students can't go into the Makerspace right now um, where we have 3D printers and laser cutters and vinyl printing but we're trying to still give them that experience by bringing them via the camera and holding tutorials that they can follow along with. UCLA has been great in making some softwares now accessible to students for free so they don't need access to specific computer labs and they can follow along. But the majority of my classes are research seminars. So these are in-person discussion-based with some lecture um, courses. And I think initially many faculty, you know, struggled even just to transition into Zoom and learn this new platform that we're all becoming much more aware of and know how to use. So it was just about delivering the lecture content in the video format um, and things like managing chat at the same time or how to sign on or off or how to record. There was a learning curve for that. And I think that as we've had more time to learn the platform and also, as we've had resources like the Center for um, the Advancement of Teaching, you know, creating worksheets and modules and trainings, something that I think students benefit from as a result of those trainings are more engagement on the online forums. So things like discussion rooms that can break students up into small groups so they can have more of these personalized discussions, things like polls so that everyone can participate in real time to answer a set of questions with multiple choice. And a lot of these have been fairly effective in moving some of the sources we were and resources and tools we were already using in a lecture-based classroom into the online format. And also kind of opened the door to also allowing us to use web applications at the same time. So for instance, something I've started to incorporate in my classes is something called Padlet. And what it does is it allows students in the class to post on the same forum. So it's almost like a communal cork board 
to which students can respond to a question, but also upload media. So personal photographs, they could, for instance, take a photograph of an analog journal entry. They can include um, web links, YouTube videos that connect to that question. And then students have a chance to see what their classmates have said in response to those questions as well. And that can be a jumping off point for identifying patterns among students and also to expose them to possibly different points of view. And that can be a great way to promote conversation and for them to get to know one another, even when they aren't sharing the same classroom space. I'd say one of the other big changes is it's made me rethink my assignments. So whereas normally on the quarter system, students might have two or three large assignments throughout do at different times throughout the quarter, something I've tried to do and I know a number of colleagues have tried to do is have smaller assignments assigned more regularly, which both makes it so that assignments appear a bit more approachable. But if someone were to get sick or have a loved one that became sick, it, be, it would become much more easier for them to catch up with the course content and allows for flexibility that can be harder when assigning maybe larger assignments just a few times over the course of a quarter. Lots of innovating and and figuring it out. And I, you know, your point about the small groups and the breakouts in Zoom sessions, I think that's something we've heard a lot from our families. Uh, I think the classroom, as hard as it is, being one of the best spaces that students are connecting with other people and making relationships right now. So while obviously everyone wants to be back in person and ideally we will all be physically together again, uh, usually we're hearing about students just looking for that connection in a club or an organization or on the residence hall floor, whatever it may be. And now the the virtual classroom is that first place where they're getting that. So uh, I think even from that social, social perspective, that's been really valuable for our students. So. I, I love that, and I, I echo that even from the, the things we've heard. Uh, well, you all are uh, humans, even as you are teaching, and, and you have your own lives and things that you need to do for yourselves professionally and personally, but you know, you, you likely have paperwork and office hours, probably even research, in addition to your own lives that you are trying to navigate yourselves in COVID. So do you have any tips for how you found balance, whatever that word means? I feel like it's a, a big light bulb word that a lot of people like to use, but how have you found whatever balance means to you or even just physically set up your space at home to be really conducive to living and learning and working in one space? So I, I, I'll be honest, I, I, I don't know what balance is, I guess, in this regard, I think we're, you know, we're really far away from equilibrium in this particular case. This pandemic happened right right around where uh, my wife and I had a newborn. Uh, she, you know, my daughter was born in February. And, and, you know, my wife has to work full time. She works remotely and myself. And so we're, you know, also constantly juggling a, at this point, it's a nine month old. So that, that has been an extra layer of challenges. I would say, you know, I think the, the job of a faculty uh, is, is such a, you know, it teaches you how to multitask and constantly do so many different things. As you mentioned, you know, I have a research lab that is about 20 uh, researchers, PhD students, postdocs, lots of undergraduate students who have been working all this time. We were shut down for a couple of months 
uh, and you know they need undivided attention 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right? Staying on top of that and also kind of navigating through the, the issues that uh, UCLA right now where the uh, reduced capacity, right? So our labs, research labs, have to be at a 25% capacity, which, which means that, you know, uh, only a fraction of researchers can come in. So we have to work in shifts now. At the same time, these are the same students who need to receive their PhD on time, need to find jobs. The job market sucks right now. How do you deal with that? I mean, it, it, it's a mess, right? And I'll be honest, right? So I think, I think there is no balance right now. And so I think we're all eagerly expecting the, the pandemic to be over and that we can go back and start getting you know it's not going to be normal right but eventually it will be and so we need to really get into the right trajectory to be normal but in the meantime i think we're just managing and you know putting out fires on a daily basis as they come so balance looks like taking it day by day and issue by issue i would say that yeah Genevieve? I'd say something similar. It's really trial and error. I have sat down with my husband and created, you know, time schedules that have been very ideal and maybe sat down and remade those schedules five different times, depending on where we were in the pandemic and what was going on in the world. And I think it's taught us, if anything, a little bit of flexibility and being okay with a little bit of chaos as best that we can. A few things that have helped that are, are pretty simple are, for me, have been just moving to different parts of our apartment throughout the day. So even doing email on the kitchen counter and then doing writing in a corner table, you know, can help me feel like I have some kind of fluidity to my day, that there's change in the day. Because I think really being in the same space is difficult. So I was eating on the dining room table, writing on the dining hall table, working with my son on the dining room table, and it just all kind of like mumbled into each other initially. And there was something about just kind of moving around that helped me feel like I had a sense of movement in my day as well. And, you know, sometimes when I couldn't move, it might be something like, well, let me change the scent, <laughs> you know, let's get some aromatherapy going or spray some air freshener, or shifting the lighting, using blue blocker glasses because I was on Zoom all the time. All of those things made little differences in the day. But I think one of the, the largest things that's been useful, especially as faculty, um, we value our, our teaching a lot. But one of the other major ways that we, we live our lives as faculty is writing and research. And that was what was um, sacrificed the most, I think, especially in those first months um, because of the prioritization of teaching and the kind of immense amounts of time it took to learn these new technologies, reaching out to students, doing new trainings. And something that's helped me to kind of get back into my writing was being able to meet daily with a writing partner over Zoom. And that's not something we had ever done before or thought about doing before because of our commute schedules. We maybe used to meet once every other week and just check in. But actually now the shift to remote learning and the facility, which would use Zoom now, made it so that I can have this regular accountability with someone in my field that allowed for a sense of community and socialization, 
but also help me find more balance between the many different parts of our lives that are required as faculty members. I love that. So we chatted about the struggles, the transition, the the roadblocks to really creating a great experience right now for, for everybody, but especially our students. So how do you think our students right now can make the most of their college education, even though it doesn't really look like anything they expected at this point? Well, I think, you know, this is a great opportunity. I, I, I always like, you know, it's maybe my Russian mentality, is you always want to look at the positives in any situation that might suck really badly. Uh, you know, if you think about it, the amount of um, distractions that, that are out there right now are probably less to many uh, in the sense that, you know, there are no less parties, less sort of these events. And maybe this is a good opportunity to really, you know, pick up a couple of extra books, read them. You know, the, the things that normally just might be very hard to do because there's a lot of other cool and interesting things you might do. And so maybe it's an opportunity to really focus on things that in, in a year or so might be very hard to do with kind of the norm, normal being back. And, uh, you know, I think maybe sometimes it's worth cherishing this time, right, where you can be in the more solitude, right, rather than being in this sort of a packed social campus, which is great as well, right? But, you know, again, we have to, we have to use what we were given right now. I think that one of the really great opportunities of this moment is that people are so much more accessible because of things like Zoom. Something I've recommended to students of mine is that if there are faculty that they're interested in connecting with, you know, both at UCLA, but also at other campuses, like now's the time to reach out to them and to share your interest in their work and to, you know, make connections that may have been harder to make before. Um, Likewise, there's a lot of really great content both through programs like this um, and podcast form, but also things like Instagram Live and Facebook. I've been to so many fantastic panels while cooking and wearing sweats and it's fantastic. And I hope students have that same opportunity, especially to experiment, maybe a lecture that you wouldn't have had time to go to before. Maybe it's a little bit outside of your your area of expertise or comfort, now's the time to experiment and to do it in a, a fairly comfortable way. The other thing I'd, imagine, I'd recommend to students is that they take this time to imagine what they want to get out of campus when they get back, if that's something that they'll be able to experience. So being really kind of intentional about planning, you know, you know, I always wanted to do this, but never did it. One of the regrets that I heard from students, especially those that were graduating, was that they had never been able to attend a sporting event, you know, that they had intended to, but then time went by and then COVID hit. So, you know, think about those things and, and do them early. Like if you want to go to a sporting event, make sure that's on your calendar for when you get back. If you want to connect with that person you took in intro to biochemistry, like make sure that's on your list when you get back. And all the things that you're you're missing now make a plan um, for how you can engage those things when and if you're able to get back. Because I think that that, you know, allows us to imagine 
an end to this um, and to know that there is a warm welcome waiting for you here. Like we're just as enthusiastic about doing those things with you and alongside you when and if things come back to in-person. I love that. We spent most of the last half of summer talking with a lot of our incoming families and understandably the big focus right now is COVID and when are we going to come back in person and what is it going to look like for my student to start at UCLA and we got to a point where we were really trying to infuse that into the conversation that this is a season it is not forever and that your student especially your new student will have a UCLA experience on campus one day. So I I love those ideas of what students wish they would have done more of because I think it it gives our incoming students some ideas of what to really prioritize, what to have fun with when they get back to campus. So that's great. What advice do you have for our parents and our family members who are supporting their student through this wild experience? while also trying to give their student autonomy, especially for our families who have their student back under their roofs right now. That's a really interesting dynamic we've been hearing about. So what advice would you give to to those parents in supporting their students through all of this? You know, I think these are the times that uh, we we all should be flexible, right? I, I think in general, we should be flexible, right? And these are especially the times where we should be uh, understanding and uh, uh, trying constantly to project ourselves in the other person's position and and try to see, you know, even though sometimes somebody does things that might not make sense to you, but the overall do to the person who's doing it. So, so I think just understanding and flexibility should be the key things that we do as we try to navigate through, you know, an event that last time happened 100 years ago, right? You know, and hopefully it will never, not happen for another 100 years after uh, we're done with this. Flexibility. Genevieve? I would say that, you know, definitely communication is important in any relationship, including those with your, your, your children. And it can be hard to give them space and let them experiment, maybe in the class selection, maybe, you know, kind of stepping back when you think that they're doing something that might lead them to fail is actually a valuable learning experience and to let them have that and to learn from it and grow from it. Giving that them that, that flexibility and space to do those things. The other thing I would say is to model taking care of yourself. I think that's also really important for them to see how you're balancing work and social life and self-care because all of those are skills that are essential to having a positive college experience and seeing that it's not all go, 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 or all work, 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 but also kind of talking through the hard times and the tension and, you know, learning what kinds of strategies help you move forward in the hard times. If they can learn those things now, that will carry them through their UCLA experience. Along those lines, because they're already at home, uh, this is also a valuable time to share just general life skills, things like cooking or ironing or laundry or how to mail a letter. These things we kind of take for granted, but that go a long way in some of the, the social skills and growth that go along with this period in life as well, especially cooking. <laughs> yes, we have 
quite a few of our parents council members who keep giving the advice of don't do their laundry, don't cook their meals for them. Like they're gonna have to learn these things when this fluke of a time is over, right? Like it's not forever. Yeah, if I could just add to that, if any of you are on social media or Instagram, UCLA has a teaching kitchen that has these live tutorials that are aimed towards students so they can learn simple meals that are healthy. Um, and that's something they can participate in in community that would connect them to a resource that exists on campus when they get back. So that can be a nice way to help them experiment with some of those. All right, well, we are getting to our, the end of our time together. So I wanna ask my last question of both of you and what does family mean to you? I'd say that there are support networks. There are the people that you're there for and the people who are there for you. Um, and that can look like different things at different stages of life. So I think families grow, they change and that's true uh, across the board. Yeah, I think in the, in the short, one word is everything, you know, uh, for, and, you know, related to the Bruin family, you, you know, I met my wife at UCLA. She's also a UCLA, was a UCLA undergraduate. So uh, we have next generation of hopefully Bruin. So, uh, you know, we've been missing out. We originally wanted to bring the baby to some games, but there were no games <laughs> and so on. So yeah, I think it's, it's, it's uh, as Genevieve said, it's, it's, it's a support network, right? It's, a com it's kind of this closest community to you with whom you can, you know, you can rely on uh, those uh, folks no matter what. And then those folks know that they can rely on you no matter what. I think it's, it's really the, you know, this trust network that, you know, will be there. Doesn't matter whether it's pandemic, you know, any other apocalypse, it's, it's, it's that. Way to end on a lovely, warm and fuzzy note. Alex and Genevieve, I just want to thank you for being with us. Um, and we have not forgotten that at the beginning of our chat together, we did a little bit of trivia. We're asking about faculty members and how many uh, have been awarded the Nobel Prize. And so the answer to our trivia is that eight UCLA faculty members and seven alumni have been awarded the Nobel Prize. And many people may know uh, most recently, of course, UCLA celebrated Andrea Ghez's 2020 prize in physics. We are proud of all of our faculty and all of our alumni, and we celebrate these exciting awards too. So to our listeners, if you got it right, give yourself a point for this season of Bruin Family Insights, and you can go ahead and keep yourself a tally as we ask these questions every week. Thank you both again for being with us, for uh, sharing your experiences, and we look forward to connecting with you soon. Thank you, Kayla. Thanks, Kayla. You've been listening to Bruin Family Insights, brought to you by the UCLA Parent and Family Association. We'd like to give a special thanks to our sponsor, Westcom Credit Union. Our guests this week were UCLA faculty members, Dr. Genevieve Carpio and Dr. Alex Bocconi. You can find out more information about Genevieve and Alex in the description of this episode. If you enjoyed our podcast, be sure to subscribe, tell a friend, or share your support on social media. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon.